at the table, we focus so much on hospitality. And last week, we had the conversation with uh, Juan Escalante of, of Ford US about his experience as a DACA recipient and someone who's been working on the 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 immigration fight and and as a dreamer and, and the immigration fight for basically half his life. He's so a really personal conversation. Um, and I want to use that as a jumping off point for I'm really excited about this next conversation because Cecilia Munoz, who is, uh, well, when I knew her, she was the director of the White House Domestic Policy Council for President Obama. She's now um, vice president of public interest technology and new initiatives at New America. Cecilia, thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to get to the book that you've written, which is More Than Ready, uh, Be Strong and Be You and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. But you discuss the the DACA fight in the book. And you, of course, this has been uh, an animating uh, feature of your career. Let's talk about the news we got last week and kind of, first of all, just your reaction. You describe the disappointment that you and others in the Obama administration felt in 2010, for example, with the failure of the, of, uh, the DREAM Act in the Senate. And now we see the Supreme Court on a, basically on a procedural issue, saying that the Trump administration wasn't able to rescind uh, the, the DACA provisions. Where are you on this, just in terms of, of your visceral response when you saw the news last week? I will tell you, I so, uh, you know, a lot of the, the immigration world was not expecting this outcome, was braced for a different outcome. A lot of us were shocked to see the news and so ready for bad news that it took a minute to absorb, oh my God, this is good news. <laughs> and it, for me, unleashed years of of grief uh over kind of you know the the election and what followed and the ways that this administration has uh, treated immigrants and that just complete how unnecessary it is that they did this to um to daca and i i actually couldn't stop sobbing for a long time um so that was my visceral reaction uh and then it felt very important to me to help to add my voice to those explaining uh, uh, what it what this ruling means because as important a victory as it is and as much as a testament as it is to the strength of the DACA recipients themselves and their power and their stories and their advocacy, it's also not a permanent change. I mean, it was some, there were people right. in the uh, in the media world reading it as a decision like the earlier decision that week, which really made it clear that. LGBT people are protected under, you know, that that's, that it, they're protected uh, under the definition of sex discrimination. And that is a permanent thing. This decision with respect to DACA recipients is not a permanent thing. It's very clear that the door is wide open for the administration to continue to try to revoke DACA. Hopefully we can run out the clock, but um, it was important that people understand there's nothing permanent here. Um, and it puts into very sharp relief again, you know, for the millionth time why the election is so important in November. Anyone who's dealt with immigration as a policy issue, as again, you have for most of your career, you, you talk about the edge of the knife, so to speak. And, and there's a, that is, that is very much a constant. I, I, I asked for the visceral response because I imagine it's familiar in some ways to just kind of get that halfway decision that's not quite enough, and and yet that's the best we can get at this point. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's such an astute thing to say because it's it's so true. We our legislative victories on this issue 
when they happen, they're extraordinary, but they're rare. I mean, I guess maybe that's true for every issue. Um, and because Congress has failed to do its job, I mean, the last major affirmative immigration reform was in 1991. Um, because we have languished for so long with solutions at hand, but unable to pass them through the Congress, you know, a whole generation has come up that doesn't remember the last time we were able to legalize people because they weren't born yet. Um, and it has lived with a kind of precariousness that is, it is unnecessary and it is greatly harmful to them, but it's also greatly harmful to all of us. And that is, that is shaped the way so many live their lives. It is also shaped the way we, it's shaped our expectations for policy. And so now we're having fights about the very tiny executive levers that are available. And we're not in a conversation about what Congress needs to do in order to do its job. And that's because it's been so long since Congress attempted to do its job that nobody even remembers. In the book, you describe jockeying for a single State of the Union sentence. And in the, and I want to talk about the, the themes of what you've written more directly because it's important about why that was the pressure you felt and the, um, the moment that you felt you were being called for and why you felt like you were there. I want to get to all of that, but because again, I know that you, you describe yourself in, in this and in person, I've talked to you many times as an introvert, more comfortable talking about policy. So I just want to keep you here as long as I have you and keep my old white house reporter hat on as long as I can, which is when we're talking about that state of the union sentence and, and the way in which the Obama administration dealt with this issue and the, the failure in the vote in 2010, how, how much do you look back and say, is there anything else we could have done to prevent the, um, the, this kind of victory in the marginalia that we're experiencing now to, 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 to take a, a, an easier road? So I think it's a, the, the thoughtful people, the most thoughtful people that I worked with all eight years in the Obama administration, and there are a lot of them, can't help but ask themselves, you know, are there things, are there things we should have done differently? Are there times when we should have put our foot on the gas more? Are there times when we should have taken our foot off of the gas? I mean, if, if you care at all about the outcomes, you can't help but ask yourself those questions. Of course. Um, so, but I do, I am confident because I was examining my conscience about that quite literally every day that we gave it all we had at, uh, all we had at the time and used every possible lever that we had. I don't actually have doubts or regrets at least about that on the question of did I give it my all did did we give it our all did did we use every available opportunity to advance the ball for immigrants um, I'm not sure we got everything right, but um, but I'm confident that, that we kind of left it all on the field to use the sports analogies that my former colleagues are so fond of using. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, having said that, you know, we, you and I are having this conversation at a time when the world is kind of broken open in a lot of ways. And we're having a different conversation, for example, about race than we were having two months ago. Um, and certainly than we were having five years ago or 10 years ago when I went into government. And I say this as somebody who's been in the civil rights movement my whole career. All of us are learning things 
Um, and all of us, I think, or hope, and I hope, are asking ourselves the question, what more should we have been doing? What more should we have been doing? So I think that's actually the right question for these times. But I also think there is a lesson in the fact that in 2009, when the Obama administration started, we were in an epic economic downturn, which sadly pales in comparison to the one we are in as you and I are having this conversation. Um, and an economic downturn is a really, really hard time to pass an, a generous immigration policy, which we learned because we tried. Um, and President Obama, who was eager to pass immigration reform, could not find partners even in his own party in the Congress. Right. Five Democratic votes shy of what would have been a major legislative victory. Well, you know, I don't blame the failure of the DREAM Act on those five Democrats. I blame it on the eight Republicans who had voted for it previously. There were actually 11 Republicans in the Senate who had voted for the DREAM Act previously. We didn't need all of them. We needed eight. We got three. That's why we lost. What I'm referring to really is that that nobody stepped up to work with the president to frame an immigration bill beyond the DREAM Act in the first two years of his administration when we had a Democratic Congress. The most we got was a set of principles out of Senator Schumer and Senator Graham. Um, Democrats did not want to touch the broader question of immigration reform. We got to the point where they were willing to put the DREAM Act on the floor and it passed the House for the first and only time. Oh, I guess it's passed since now. And, uh, And it failed in the Senate, as you say, by five votes. But understand, this was in the context of people in the president's own party, every time he would say out loud, as he did frequently, I want to get an immigration reform done. It was, you know, members of his own party would call David Axelrod and, you know, his phones would light up and from Democrats in Congress saying, please don't make us have this conversation right now. Yeah. Um, So, and, and that is a cautionary tale because while I think a lot has changed in 10 years, I think perhaps not enough. (laughs) And um, of course we have now the experience of many years of the Trump administration and and the harm that they've done. And it's a, it's a complicated mix um, and a difficult one. And I think sometimes a more difficult one than people in the immigration movement appreciate. Well, and, and so many people at that level experience it and appreciate it in in an intensely personal way. Let me use this as as an entry point for the larger themes of the book you've written, again, More Than Ready, because the doubt that you express, and that even if someone's just listening to this conversation, even if they were just listening to your tone, they can understand the deliberation, the sense of purpose, but also the the real self-examination that you put forward. And that is kind of the subtext of a lot of this. Uh, the book is, is, you know, again, lessons for women of color, trying to make sure that, that your experience is not, um, that it has a wider audience than just the people that you've been able to directly mentor and, 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 you know, reach and touch personally. Um, and, and, and the, the, the lessons are really valuable. I, again, as a straight white dude, I, I found a lot of things in there, not just for me, but for the, professional relationships that I have for my marriage for, you know, I, I thought that it was, it was interesting in a lot of those contexts, but you talk about this doubt. One of the things that you write about, um, the president, president Obama saying is, you know, I'll take better every time again on this specific DACA issue. 
But I think about this moment where a lot of women, especially women of color, are forced to choose which path they want to take. What should people take about these hard moments, these, these inflection points, and how they can rise to meet them in the best possible way? And how, especially for, for women of color, because I feel like the intended audience here is not just women of color, but I, I found that, that voice that you used for them so powerful that that it, it is it, it, the value was was immediately palpable to me. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Um, that that's exactly what I was hoping to accomplish with this book. A, a woman named Maria Elena Salinas, who is the she was one of the anchors on the Univision News. She's a journalist now with CBS News. Asked me what I thought was such a compelling question about this book. She said, "Is the woman of color that you are that you are writing for?" and giving advice to really you. And I thought, wow, hmm. maybe I think the answer to that might be yes. I, I, as I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about both what have I learned over 30 years and what am I gleaning from the lessons of those seven women that I interviewed in preparing the book, um, but also a heavy dose of what do I wish I had known earlier that I know now, and, and what do I have to offer a woman uh, a woman of color in the workplace in her life, that would be a valuable lesson. And I think the the biggest one and uh, sort of the, the way to boil down what I'm hoping to accomplish with the book is to help us understand ourselves as the leaders that we already are, because the world really needs us right yes. now. Um, and that's the big thing that I was trying to accomplish. And I learned in the process of writing the book, both I had, it forced me to distill what I have learned you know, from some of the hard knocks of my own career. Uh, but I also, it reaffirmed for me that as women of color, I, I interviewed two Native American women, some African American women, some Asian American women. And there are obviously big differences in our experience, but there are big, big commonalities in our experience. And when I asked each one of them, you know, what's your strategy for self-doubt? Or have you had a time when, you know, somebody said to you that they pretty much doubted that you belonged in the role that you were in? Every single one of them said, oh, yes, of course. Oh, my gosh, yes. And importantly, the strategies that we came up with on our own to cope with those things are the same. And so what that said to me was, each of us is doing this on our own, and we don't need to do it on our own. We don't need to navigate this on our own because we are actually all going through similar things. So this was for me, a way to start the conversation and to make a little bit more visible the things that happen that we don't talk about enough um, because they're very, very common. I want to go back to kind of current events because you mentioned your friend who's a journalist and a few moments ago you described how we're having a different conversation on race. One of the things that you wrote about in the book was, this was in the chapter on fear and how it can be um, it can be a teacher, it can be a motivator, etc. You, you talk about how overwhelmingly white and male newsrooms missed the power of racist rhetoric, Trump's racist rhetoric and others' racist rhetoric in 2016. Yeah. Are you at all heartened by some of the correction we're seeing even in the just the last few weeks since the, the killing of George Floyd and the the awareness of other tragedies that are similar and the response that we've seen around the country are you and 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 specifically in the 
journalists love talking about journalists. I, I have not gotten over that uh, yet. And so I'm thinking about this in the context of the country. And I'd love, you know, as someone who's been involved in policy for the entire country, I, I'm interested in that. But also from the perspective of, you know, your friends who are journalists, I know that some of us have actually uh, managed not to annoy you enough <laughs> over the years that you've got some people. And, and, and maybe there's, there's some, the, some changes that you see coming down the pike as well there. So I do have a lot of hope. And I have to say, you know, I have, I have, in a way, the Trump era has given me greater reverence for journalists and, and journalism and how important it is. Like, I, I feel like we've all gotten a lesson in um, how important it is to have somebody struggling to get to the truth. Um, but at, this, at the same time, you know, a lot of frustration. And you picked up on some of it that I described in the book, that, that part of the reason we have ended up where we have ended up is that journalists who were covering the 2016 election were uh, a lot of them were not recognizing what they were seeing or were reluctant to name what they were seeing because we have such ingrained habits of not saying that something is racism, even when it's very clearly racism. It's just a, a thing that kind of wasn't done. And I, I know a lot of journalists and a lot of us just in the country are have been questioning that and pushing on that, that, you know, when a white supremacist is sitting in the West wing of the white house, why can't we say that they're a white supremacist? Um, uh, so I have, I have both still a great deal of frustration at what I see about how things are reported on, but also a great deal of hope. I mean, what's happened in these uprisings around the country and is happening, frankly, in my daughter's generation is you know, people are just not having it anymore. And, yeah. and the rest of us, frankly, have begun to see things that we weren't seeing as clearly as we should, in part because they're just indisputable because they're on film. <laughs> and I, I wish I had an answer as to why we are doing the soul search as a country now that we didn't do after Ferguson five years ago. Like, how many deaths exactly at the hands of police does it take before the country you know, has a soul search. And I think it's possible that part of the reason that this moment feels different is because this moment is happening while we have a, a, a racist in the Oval Office. But it's also true that we are still struggling with our taboos about naming what it is that we are seeing and experiencing. Um, and, uh, and some of that is, you know, happening in journalism. You know, I, if I see another article describing a situation which is abjectly racist as something which is racially charged, I'm, you know, my head is going to explode. explode. Right. It's, like, like it's a physics problem. Like, oh, it's just got too many negative, you know, it's too many, uh, you know, too many electrons or something. You know, it's, it's racially charged. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, no, that kind of, that kind of creates a both, both sidesism to somebody who is being a racist or behaving in a racist way that just isn't there. Right. Uh, and it, it speaks to the, the burden that the African-American community in particular, but people of color in general, have carried for a really, really long time. Also in that chapter on fear, and you, you write about correcting the president was your job. And when you talk about Trump in the White House, it, it, is, it is easy to, to imagine you 
correcting President Obama because you describe it, and I think you know it's it's a very believable uh, you know, series of anecdotes where you talk about the, the the way in which you do it, and again dealing with the larger themes of the book, the agony that you put yourself through as a woman of color trying to make sure that you were doing it in the right way. Yeah. But then I, I, I tried to imagine, it was amusing to me for several reasons, you in the Trump White House, <laughs> but I cannot imagine President Trump allowing anyone, let alone a woman of color, correct him. And, and how does this expose him to worse decision-making? Again, I'm asking you this, I think we could probably talk about this as a, pol- as a political matter for a while, but I'm just talking about the policy decision-making. We've seen him exemplify the worst of kind of that white male privilege of, I will not allow myself to be criticized. Certitude is the test of certainty to turn the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote on its head. And that, you know, I, I, you know, can, apologizing or admitting I'm wrong is, is a sign of weakness. Oh yeah. And I think about that contrasting with what you describe as a much healthier work back and forth in the Obama white house and I can only imagine your frustration if you were were stuck trying to advise this president for about 30 seconds. Yeah, well, that's needless to say never going to happen. And interestingly, <laughs> I'm not sure I can name a single woman of color in his circle. Um, well, so, Omarosa was, uh, uh, you know, I was a White House reporter while she was uh, walking around. So I could <laughs> just, but aside from uh, former reality TV stars, I think you're, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete turning on its head of what the, what the job of a presidential advisor is so much so that it's like, I can't even, I can't even imagine the mindset. If you think your job is to make the president feel like he's right when he's not. Right. Um, Right. Or how terrifying it must be when you actually know what the facts are and you know that he's never going to absorb them and that he doesn't actually care. And of course, how utterly tragic it is when those facts, that when it is essential to get those facts right or else people die, which is the situation that we're in right now. Um, so, you know, what I learned and what, in some ways I learned this from, from President Obama more than anybody else was how deeply, first of all, he's a very smart guy. <laughs> he knows a lot of stuff. He's pretty brilliant. Um, but he also understands and accepts that he doesn't know everything. And that I think Mrs. Obama makes it clear to him, and he would talk about this a lot, that there's a lot he doesn't know about what it's like for women. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, but he understood that for all of his capacity and his capacity was enormous, he needed people around him who knew different stuff and he needed people to correct him when there was stuff he didn't know or stuff he was getting wrong, because that's how you do a better job. Um, and so one of the examples I recounted in my book in the chapter on fear is, is my former colleague and my friend, Jody Archambault Gillette, who's a Native American woman in a in a emotionally charged meeting, which the president called after his visit to the Standing Rock community, which is her community, um, where he, first of all, the president was in tears at this meeting because of what he saw, what the young people at Standing Rock said to him and to Mrs. Obama. And he really wanted to, he was engaging his cabinet and his team in figuring out what, what we could do. And one of his suggestions was off in Jody's view, and she had to screw up her courage and tell him. Um, and she described that as a moment of real fear. And of course, for, for me, it was a moment of, of um, 
I mean, it, it took courage for her to do, but it was essential. The whole reason to have somebody like Jody in the room is to make sure that the rest of us who are not Native Americans don't get it wrong. Um, so that's that's what we need her to do. That doesn't make it easy to do. And I was in that situation a lot in my eight years. And it is a particular challenge for people of color, and I think perhaps even more so for women of color, because we are constantly calibrating. All right, is this the moment where I have to say the thing that nobody knows but me? And if I do it every time, am I going to become the person who everybody rolls their eyes because they will say, oh, here she is. She's going to say the thing that she always says, and we're going to nod politely and, you know, and then get about, get about our business. Like you don't want to become that person, but you do have to speak the truth and you do have to bring your full self into the room. And we're constantly calibrating and it's exhausting. Um, And again, part of what, part of what I hoped for in the book was to, name that and describe strategies that a lot of us have developed for dealing with that and maybe help others who don't go through that understand what it's like. For the firsts and the onlys that you describe, the people who are, you know, the, the, the first or the only of their demographic type to, to be in that, you know, I think about that in the context also that, especially in politics, that women are socialized to be more empathetic or to be demure in these, in these moments or that people of color. And we, again, talking about George Floyd, you know, we, we demand so much of, you know, the, the, the inferior status or socialized to accept, you know, you're, you're a black man in America. So you have to deal with the police in this particular way. You have to say, sir, you have, again, the, the emotional toll that that takes, you, you tap into it a lot, but I imagine that, there are more examples than you can count of ways in which you've had to have that fight in your own head. You, you describe it in the book, but I, again, I, I kind of saw those gears turning as I was reading it and saying, you know, this is something, this is work you're doing constantly that I wouldn't even necessarily perceive if I chose because of how I've been socialized not to. Yeah. It's interesting because I have a debate about this with my daughters who are 27 and 24 and they are biracial. They are Latinas. And my, my husband is from India. So they are also Asian and they, you know, they see me as someone who ties herself up in knots like a pretzel to modulate what I'm saying in my desire for it to be understood and heard. Right. So they see me as accommodating what I perceive as other people's ability to grasp what it is I'm trying to tell them. And my daughters are having none of it. They're like their view is we're going to be authentically who we are. We're going to name the thing. And if you can hear it, then good for you. And if you can't, then it's kind of not my problem. I'm like my job is not to turn myself into a pretzel so that you can understand what I'm trying to communicate. And we have I, I, I. Um, I respect that enormously. And I'm actually kind of excited to see that this is their view because I have never had the luxury of having that view. Um, And I still, the part of me that is a policymaker that has spent decades of my life trying to convince people in the room with me to do the thing I need them to do so that people's lives will be better, um, is is not quite there. It's not enough for me to name the thing. I have to win my audience. And um, I think it's 
interesting and exciting and important that we're raising a generation that that's done with that. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, but hopefully it means um, that my daughters understand their power better than I did. It's it's really exciting to hear you talk about this because I, so my my wife and I have our first uh, first child, our, our son who's only five months old, and we've we've already described to each other very often how we imagine he might rebel against, you know, I I think one of the the hilariously uh, difficult side effects of having two educated, you know, it, it's a blessing of course, but the, the, these, you know, you have two educated parents is you know that you're, you're going to provide enough ammunition for your kids to attack everything that you want in the, in a way that, that is just going to force you to reevaluate everything that you care about. And you've already done this. I'm looking ahead toward it yep. as, with my, with my, and, and, and when you describe it, can you just, can you explain a little bit more? Cause I imagine there's, there's the part of you as the mom who's actually done the work, right? You've been this, you know, you describe these pioneering paths that you've taken throughout your career. You've done this, you've, you've described, you know, how you have to, it's, it's the difference between you saying I have wings and they have a right to exist here in this room with you. And then saying, we're going to fly every day because we have wings. And I think, and I think about this, like, do you ever want to temper them and say, actually, no, you know, you're in your twenties, you know, my experience is you've got to wait a little bit longer. And I think about that, especially in the context of this election where we have this decision in front of us. I don't think most of the people listening to this conversation have any doubt about which is the better choice in November, but I also think that there are a lot of people who might be less than enthusiastic because the 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 ossified leadership of the Democratic Party is still very much white and older and and in many cases male. Yep. And they just we're not we want to fly. Yeah. That's it it's, you're describing exactly, you know, that I have so many layers of this conversation with my daughters and at some level, thank God, you know, right. Yeah. They <laughs> a better debate to be having. Seeing. They understand what they're seeing and they're not having it. And at some level, thank God. And fortunately, my daughters fully know that, you know, that the, the choice that's before us in November is very clear and they're not going to let, a, you know, they're not going to vote for a misogynist and a racist. So, so we're good. Um, they're not rebelling in that way, which I think is probably the easiest, the easiest uh, gimme for you to experience yeah. at this point. But, you know, but we've had two versions of this conversation. The first, first version was when the Me Too moment happened and I realized that I had oh, yeah. shared with my daughters Enough of my experience, some of I'm a I'm a survivor of attempted assault, and they knew about that experience, and I had offered it to them as a way of help of protecting them, but I actually hadn't told them everything, and suddenly I thought I found myself asking, "Holy cow, why didn't I tell them everything?" And I started to feel like, as a generation, like we failed to make it better for our daughters, like we kept these things to ourselves by not talking about it in the way that we all didn't talk about it. We failed to, in our responsibility to them. And I wrote to them and, uh, and we had this conversation and they started with, okay, mom, we didn't expect you to fix, you know, to like fix men. So 
we're good. <laughs> Thank you for telling us this, but like you didn't fail. I think about, I think about, by the way, you write in one part where you get elevated to your, uh, the white house role that you had at the end, the, uh, the director of the, the, uh, the, um, domestic policy council. And you get a note from a former colleague in the immigration movement. Great. Now we get to criticize you. Yep. You know, this is, <laughs> but it's kind of the opposite. Like mom, you didn't have to fix all of masculinity. Right. <laughs> like, and, and I was grateful for them saying that because I was really feeling terrible. But then more recently, you know, in all of our conversations about race and about gender and about gender identity and like all of the ways in which the world is changing and which we are, you know, are, are working to be on top of and catch up with and the climate and like all of the things that we're worried about, they also said, you know, but your, your generation did not get this right. You did not. Yeah fix some very big things that you knew and you saw and they're right. <laughs> um, which is not to say, you know, that I, I don't think they appreciate how much progress we made from, you know, my generation is still, yeah. I'm, I'm in my late fifties. Like I remember being told that the only two career options for a female were, you know, nurse and teacher. Um, and, you know, so we made a lot of progress that they, that is kind of unimaginable to them because they came up into a world that had that had already changed. But it is also true what they what they are saying about how much is undone and how much is on their shoulders to fix. And and um, I think both of those things can be true at the same time. And as you know, I'm clearly an elder in the movement now. I accept that maybe a little grudgingly, maybe a little stupidly. But there's this tension of I want people coming up who I admire so much, including my daughters, to know what I know because they're going to need to know it. And some of it is not good news. Um, and I also don't want to clip those wings. I want them to fly. And finding that balance is really challenging. And again, that's another one of the kind of examinations I went through in writing this book is I, I don't think <laughs> that we are done dealing with self-doubt. I don't think we're done dealing with people who who doubt us because of who we are and who think maybe we're not prepared to lead. We are clearly not done with that. Um, and so, you know, what I've written is an offering to help folks navigate that. But it is also true that the people coming up know stuff that we never knew. And thank God for that. Because the experience of sexual violence, sexual assault, or in your case, attempted sexual assault is so universal to hear you describe it. And to hear you talk about kind of the back and forth with your daughters, I'm genuinely surprised that there wasn't more of it in the book because it's so universal. And for, for women of color, I'm guessing the options for, for dealing with it and a desire for strategies to overcome it is, is even more necessary. Why didn't you put more of that in there to, to, to kind of help in this very necessary way? This is a great question. I, uh, you were naming a big moral wrestle that I had with myself in preparing the book. And you're the first person to ask me this question. Um, I, I struggle very much with telling the details of my particular story, in part because, as I said, I've been able to name it as an attempted assault, which made a big mark on my life. But there's a part of me that thinks it doesn't count. 
because I screamed and he didn't succeed. And so it makes me feel not quite qualified to talk about um, about a set of experiences which um, are really, really common for women in which I have kind of a partial set of, but not a full set of, if that makes sense. And so I didn't feel, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel authoritative enough. And this is, I fully get, as I hear myself say this, that this is part of the problem, right? This is part of why we don't talk about it. Um, but I wasn't, and I'm still not ready to do it. I, I, I get that. Um, I, I also have a story that I, I never really talk about. And so it's uh, one of those things that, and for people who are listening to this conversation, uh, they've, they've never heard me talk about it. And I think there's a lot of, especially for men, obviously the, the, the social rules are different, but um, it's tough. And I, I don't, I, I wasn't asking as a blame, but I was asking from a sense of, it's so clear. I knew that you had had this debate in my mind as, as I was hearing you describe it. And I just wanted you to, to address it because I feel like, again, the women who are reading this and the women you've encountered, you all have these stories. You know that you do. Like everyone, every, you know, I, what, what are the percentage of the people in the former White House colleagues that didn't have a story that could, uh, that could compare or, you know, you, you couldn't talk about it? Yeah, it's true. In fact, there was, I, I wouldn't name names because these are their stories to tell, but you know, we would have dinners, the senior most women, um, to just, you know, as a way of watching out for each other. And at one such dinner, we had this conversation and there was not a woman in the room who didn't have a story, not one. Every 100% of us, arguably among the most powerful women in the country, and 100% of us had a story. And I think that you describe, again, some of the most powerful women in the country and yet still feeling, and of course, that's the that's the entire point of sexual violence, to to make that powerlessness... Yeah. palpable, even long beyond the time when it was happening. Yes. And I'll say this out loud because you were not the first man to say to me what you just said about your own story. And what that suggests to me is that there is a current here that we're also not discussing yet, and which it doesn't mean that you're obligated to discuss it, but there's, there is more going on here than we know, than we're talking about. Um, and I, I'm just saying that out loud because I'm observing it. And I, you know, I thank you for saying what you said. We have so much work to do on this front so much. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you know, for people who listen to this conversation, you know, I, I try to create the idea of at the table is again, kind of what you've described is the, the power of diversity, understanding that my voice isn't the only one that matters. And also that there are going to be people who make me better. It's the reason my wife and I, for the last four years now, have been doing regular, you know, dinners that have become Zoom meetings now because everything's a Zoom meeting uh, where we invite people and try to, you know, just just see each other. I started it four years ago, by the way, because I was covering the Trump campaign and I was driving myself crazy and I needed some normalcy. And for me, with my background, I found it in gathering around the table. And so that's that's kind of the extension of, of how this has come. Um, and I find a lot of comfort in it. Okay. Because we're talking about the the male half of the equation, I finally feel like I have some license to ask you a question about what you described kind of early on in the book, the narrower path that was available to you, and then the the men who, and mostly white men, and you, you talk about 
uh, or some somewhat white men. Uh, you talk about Charles, your boss. You talk about Father Tim Scully, who I knew at Notre Dame. You talk about Wade. You talk about these these men who created space for you. And and what's your message in the men who weren't in those dinners with the senior most uh, w- women in, in the Obama White House? Uh, men who want to be good allies for the women, especially the women of color in their lives. How can they do better? So I think so. I thank you for the question. I think it requires. Um, some listening, but also some being deliberate about how you act. So I encourage men who ask me this question to both to think about how much talking versus how much listening they do, but also to be the the guy in the room who hears a woman make a point and and reinforces it by naming her, (laughs) right? So we've all had the experience of you make a point and then somebody, and then a guy makes the same point later, and everybody suddenly gets it. Um, uh, you know, be the be the one who notices who's sitting at the table and who's sitting in the back of the room. Um, be the one who notices when one woman makes an excellent point and say, you know, she just said an extraordinary thing. Um, uh, you know, be the person who notices if you're in a room that's all male or all white. Um, and and then be the person who says something about it. Um, I've been so many times in this situation, including so many times very recently, a couple of meetings that I've been invited to with thinkers, advocates, people who are experts on poverty in America. Twice in the last year, I've been invited to groups of 40 or 50 people where I'm one of maybe two people of color in the room. And the people that we are talking about are overwhelmingly people of color. And it's, so I have the like, you know, frustration of noticing that. And then the whole soul search of, right, of like, okay, when do I say the thing? Am I going to say the thing? <laughs> Is somebody else going to say the thing? Um, and then, you know, for because I'm me, like, how do I say the thing so that people will actually hear it and change their behavior? Um, so be the person who says the thing is, um, is part of my advice. Let me ask a, a different version of the same question, because when you were describing, uh, you, you talk a lot about having an amazing partner you, you have in your husband and my wife and I, you know, we're going to be married nine years next month. My son will be five months old next week. How can I do better? I mean, you don't know anything about my marriage, but how can I do better? So that is a very big question. I, what I have learned from my deeply wonderful husband is that part of his job and part of my job each of us is to help the other one be who they need to be in the world. And at times it's been me playing the supporting role so that he can be who he needs to be. And at times, probably more times, frankly, he's been playing the supporting role in helping me be who I need to be. And that that's our collective job. Um, And approaching it that way is equals is harder than you think, but boy, so well worth it. Yeah. I think about that a lot and uh, hopefully I'm getting better at it, but I, I just, I really appreciate the book. It's um, there's a lot there. I think for people who are reading it, you don't, you don't, uh, there's a lot, there's, it's, there's something for you, even if you're not a woman of color, let me just, as someone who's not uh, and got a lot of out of it. um, The the book is more than ready. Cecilia Munoz, who is at New America now, she was at the Obama White House as the Director of Domestic Policy, uh, Domestic Policy Council. Cecilia, thank you so much for your time today and for this book and for 
um, being as thoughtful as you are in the things that, that you, uh, that you've been working on for so long. I appreciate this so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for leading such thoughtful conversations, especially now. Really appreciate it.